by pointing out to you the unique opportunity uh, that God has given us in his good providence. Uh, you know, as you'll recall, over the last five weeks or so, our focus has been on those prophecies in Isaiah uh, that pointed us ahead to the birth of Christ. And so we've had the opportunity to really focus on through the word and also through the various events of Christmas, uh, focus on the birth of our Savior. We've had the opportunity to focus on the, the beginning of his life. Uh, but now, as we turn back to Luke, we go all the way to the other end, right? It's almost like we have picked up a biography and we've read the first two chapters, and now we're going to read the last two, or maybe here, the last three chapters. Uh, and normally, I would tell you that's not a great way to do things. I'm sure Lori, as a librarian, would not appreciate us just reading the front and the back of a book. But uh, here, considering who Jesus is, uh, considering that in a very real way he was born so that he might die, uh, we have a, a unique opportunity in front of us. It is going to bring into sharp focus, sort of point blank, all that we have seen over the Christmas season. Uh, we're going to see all that actually unfolds for that baby in his mother's arms. For that baby that was laying in a manger. And so, uh, if you are feeling the weight of our study in Luke, uh, let the reality of what all we will soon see, uh, let the, the deep love of Jesus that he shows to us here towards the ends of his life, uh, let that encourage you. Uh, let that give you the energy to, to push through the good news of Jesus' salvation. Now, uh, before we read our text... Uh, let me just quickly remind you that when we left off uh, in chapter 19, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, uh, that triumphal entry as we refer to it as, and he had very publicly declared himself king. Uh, and in so doing, he had essentially sealed his fate at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And so since then, since that day, uh, every interaction... Uh, every day has brought a, a sort of raised or growing tension. Uh, it's kind of like a rubber band is being stretched, and eventually you know it's going to pop. Well, here it is just continually stretching thinner and thinner. Uh, and as we turn to chapter 22, as the readers of Luke's gospel, we see it pulled even thinner today as the plot to kill Jesus begins to unfold. And what I want us to see as we see that plot unfold is that it exposes, it exposes the hearts of, of all who are involved. Not just the ones that are making the plot, but also those who will be a part of it. It also exposes our hearts today as readers. And so as we move through this, I want us to ask, what is the position of our own hearts? Whose hearts do we relate with most here? And who or what are we resting in? So with all of that in mind, let's read this together. We'll actually begin in chapter 22 and in verse 37 just for context. And we'll read through chapter 22 uh, and in verse 34. Let's hear God's word. It says, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. And they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. 
He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This, is, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of, them it, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is, who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Father God, as we come now to this, your portion, this portion of your holy word, we pray that you would guide us and direct us. Uh, give us wisdom uh, as we seek you in these words. Uh, and Lord, guide our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hearts exposed. Uh, well, the first thing I want you to take note of here in this passage is the heart of the lost. The heart of the lost. And you see it here in two ways. First, you see it corporately in the lives and in the schemings of the chief priests and of the scribes. Now, certainly, these were groups made up of individuals with individual hearts. But it's interesting and informative to consider the sort of collective position of these leaders because what it reveals to us is sort of the depths of human depravity. It reveals to us the depths of the sinful world and how far 
people as a group, and particularly leaders of this world, will go to deny the truth that is right before them. Think back over the course of our study of Luke. Yes, these Jewish leaders had taken every opportunity that they could uh, to show us how much they hated Jesus. They had shown us at every turn how much they disbelieved all that, that he had said. But if they had listened, if they had watched him clearly, what was it that Jesus had shown them over and over and over again? Showing them the truth, right? Think back to the, the miracles that they had seen. Now, clearly, they were not privy to all of Jesus' miracles. Let's be honest, just one, just one time where a person altered the natural world, that should be enough to convince us. But even if that one was not, they had surely heard all the stories of what Jesus had done, that blind were seeing, that the deaf were hearing, that dead men were raised again question they should have asked is, is who could heal in this way? Who could control the physical world in this way? Who could raise the dead? Sure, the Old Testament prophets had done many of these things and they knew that, but they also knew that it was not the power of man that had done those things. They would have said very clearly, very staunchly, that that was God's work through the prophets to be sure, but it was God's work Nonetheless, so in the miracles, they had seen the truth of who Jesus was. Not only there, but they had seen the truth of who he was in his word. What was it that, that the people said over and over and over again as they experienced Christ teaching to them? They'd say, this is one who has authority. And not a, a second-hand authority, not one derived from someone else like their authority. But this is one who has an authority in and of himself. His were the words of the only Son from the Father. His words revealed His grace and His truth. They had heard. They had seen it clearly. Lastly, they had seen it in lives transformed. You know, there are only one example. One example will be enough to, to prove my point here. You remember back in John chapter 9, uh, Jesus heals the man that was blind. He spits in the mud and He makes and He puts it on His eyes, right? And the man goes away healed. And the Pharisees and the scribes call him in. And they ask him how he had been healed. And it goes back and forth two or three times. And finally the man says, I don't know who Jesus was, but I know I was blind. And now I can see, right? Now, now how, how did all of that ultimately end up in the story? Did they say, oh, you're right. This is a great miracle. Your life has been transformed. You were hopeless you are sitting at the gate week after week, month after month. But now, because of this man, you have been healed. So surely, he is sent from God. Is that how the Pharisees responded? No. Their response was to send him away. We know more than you. How are you going to teach us about what God has done? Even then, they did not believe. And now here, as we come to the end of the gospel, even now, notice they still are not willing to hear. They, they have no interest here in a dialogue. They have no interest here in talking to Jesus. Their minds are made up. All they simply want to do is find a way to kill him. Their hearts, as those in Noah's day, 
are continually evil. All the time, right? You think of those passages in Judges where the people wanted only what was right in their own eyes. This is always the way of those who are lost, those hearts who are lost. And so it's not surprising to us to find these Pharisees and these scribes kind of going down with the ship collectively, right? We see this corporately working out in their lives. And so that's not a surprise. But secondly, we see it also individually. And the one that we see here, if we didn't know anything else about the story, it would be a surprise to us. Because this is not a Pharisee. This is not a scribe. This is not a Roman authority. This is not just some random guy on the street. Though Jesus does love random guys on the street. But this is not that. This is one of the twelve. This is Judas. Judas who had experienced all of those things that we just said, not by word of mouth, but experienced them firsthand. He did see the majority of Jesus' miracles. He did see lives transformed up close and in person. He heard the word. He heard the authority. Not only that, but friends, have you ever considered what it must have been like to be a disciple? You know, not only did they get to see Jesus up close, they got to be with him up close. Like when, when everybody else went away, the great crowds, who was left? It was the twelve. And so they had these, these intimate moments with Jesus. These times of teaching where, where there was only them. Or maybe even these times of one-on-one teaching. Certainly they had shared tears together. They had shared joys and laughs. They had shared love together. They had seen Jesus' grace in a way that, that nobody else on earth at that time had seen Jesus' grace. If anybody should have been changed, if anybody should have loved Jesus, it should have been the twelve. It should have been Judas. And yet, in verse 3, what is he? He is the conduit of Satan. He is the the inroad that will seal the plot to kill this one who who is supposedly his master and his Lord. Now let's not get this twisted here. Certainly, Satan here is at work in a a special way. He's at work in a way that that he normally might not be. So, So Satan is not omnipresent, right? So for him to come and to, to settle in on Judas specifically is, is more than usual. But it's also recognized that, that he's not coming to one who is an unwilling host. Because what has Luke told us all along the way? If we've paid attention, Luke has dropped us hints. Has Judas at any point ever truly believed the, the truth about Jesus? The answer is no. All along the way, Luke has said he was a lover of money. That that he was just simply in it for himself. Judas will will be at the front of the line of those that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 7 of 
Uh, Lord, didn't we know you? Did, didn't we do these things in your name? Didn't we do great miracles and all of these things? You, you just did all of that. And yet Jesus will say, I know you. I know who you were. How, friends, how could this be? As we read this, we have to stop and ask, how? How could he miss it? I would refer you back to, to Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Who can know it? Or to Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, friends, the extent of man's depravity is deep even deep enough to betray God in the flesh for a few silver coins. Well, the application here is twofold. All of this, but particularly Judas, is a warning to any of us in the church today. Not just this church, but in the church universal. Nearness to God's people. Nearness to the things of God. Nearness to His Word. Even knowledge of Christ which Judas had in abundance, those things in and of themselves will not save you. Only Jesus can save. And frankly, our hearts will do most anything they can to keep us from Him. So, it leads us to search our hearts. It leads us to depend on the Holy Spirit, to cry out, Lord, send your Spirit in our hearts to do that work so that we might love you, so that we might look to you as you call us to do. Second point of application. I just want to remind you that as we live in a sinful world, we should not be surprised, as it so often seems that we are, by the extent to which people will go to hate and deny the truth of Jesus. Here we see it on full display. This is still true in the world even now. And so we argue and we take up arms and we do all of these things to try to convince them otherwise. But friends, what we should be doing, myself included, is falling on our knees and praying that God would transform. That He would do that work that only He can do. That He would send revival a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that people might believe, so that they might look to Him and trust in Him. Pharisees and Judas, they are proof that without Him, there's no hope for the heart of the lost. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice the heart of the still sinful elect. Now, in case we think that, well, I'm glad I'm not Judas... I'm glad I'm not like these Pharisees, or in case we might think, well, that won't happen to me because I am trusting in the Lord, and look, that's a good thing, but notice that Luke immediately shows us the heart of those who are truly followers of Christ. And again, we see it both corporately and individually. Corporately, in verse 24, we see it as these disciples argue over who, once again, arguing over who would be the greatest. These guys, I, 
We're going to talk about Peter in a second and how they're so relatable to us, but these guys are so relatable, right? They've argued this once already, and Jesus has, has told them, you've missed it. But here again, they are, and in that, I see, I see my heart. I see myself over and over with the same things, right? But it's interesting here to, to note, and it's worth noting, that all of this comes on the heels of the, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, which as we know is a clear representation of what Christ will soon do, also comes on the heels of Jesus telling them, one in your midst is going to betray me. And so you would think that these guys, they would be sort of buttoned up, that, that they would be on their best behavior. They would at least be on guard, and yet here they are, their hearts selfishly dreaming of power and of status of what their place will be in the kingdom. Clearly, even now, they have missed the point of all Christ has said and done. At the minimum, uh, they had certainly let their guard down. You know, like Israel in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, they had took, taken their eyes off their Savior. And so sin and Satan have pounced. Sin, as Paul confesses in Romans 7, that is still with them, even as those who are saved. We see in the, the group, the disciples, the truth of their hearts. But then, as I said, you see it also uh, in the life of Peter. Uh, and again, we all... I think all, uh, appreciate Peter because we are Peter. We are him. You know, he, he gets it right so often, but then just as many times he gets it completely wrong. And like real close together, he gets it right, and then he gets it wrong in the same sentence, almost in the same breath. And we're like, hey, that's, that's me, right? That's us. We, we see ourselves in Peter. Uh, but he's also a great warning to us. Here again, Satan is at work. Jesus says, Peter, or Simon, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you. And it's, it's interesting there that the Greek you there is actually plural. And so it seems that Jesus is talking to Simon as the, the leader of the twelve, but he's really referring to all of the disciples that Satan will soon sift. And we know that's true just from church history. We know what ultimately will happen to all of them. Satan will, will do his work in all of them. But then when Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, it goes back to singular. The, the you there is singular. So clearly he's got Peter in focus, Peter in mind. Uh, Peter's going to be under attack. But notice here uh, Peter's bravado. Notice, notice his, his confidence that, that is bordering on arrogance in his response to what Jesus says there uh, in verse 33. Uh, but Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Uh, you remember in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 26 and in verse 31, uh, he's even more emphatic. It says, then Jesus said to him, you will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you. And Peter answered him, they all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He was convinced. He was convinced he had it. I got this. I'm with you. 
I will not leave you. He, he had it all in, in the power in the palm of his hand. And yet we all know the end of the story, don't we? We know what will soon come to pass. Peter, in fact, does not have it. He will deny Jesus. So we say, once again, how? 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 If Peter is going to deny Jesus in this way, what, what hope do we have? Well, again, our point of application is this. Clearly, these are men who were truly saved, who were truly redeemed, trusting in the Lord to be sure. But complacency, laziness, false, a false sense of our own strength or ability to resist, uh, more times than not, will show itself. It will lead us uh, to a fall. What does Proverbs uh, 16, 18 say? Uh, pride comes before the fall. Often as Christians, we, we have that. We, we have this sense of independence that we can do it. What we need, what we should pray, is that God would show us over and over again how truly dependent we are. Show us how desperately we need Him. And as we've already prayed this morning, that He would keep us from evil, from the temptations that are always with us. Also, by way of application, I would just say to you that this also teaches us not to be uh, too fond of this world and our current state and place in it. Uh, if you know Augustine's work, he, he talks a lot about this fourfold state of man, and we don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, but, but he, in the end, the last state, the, the heavenly state, is we will be unable to sin. Friends, we should look forward to that day. We should look forward to it very much, where sin will no longer be an option on the table for us. And that won't happen until Jesus returns. And so we look forward, we, we trust that, that He is doing that. And even now, we pray that He would show us our sin. And so, we've seen the heart of the lost, we've seen the heart of the sinful elect. And then thirdly and finally and quickly, I want you to notice here, the heart of the Savior. heart of the Savior. As we wrestle with all that we have just seen, as we wrestle with our own sin, as we ask, what, what hope do we have? Well, here, as we read what Jesus does in these various passages, it should give us, it does give us, great hope. Notice first here how he responds to the disciples and their, their debate about greatness. He is, the, the Savior's, is a servant's heart. You know, we read verse 27 and we say, oh yeah, that's what we want. We want to recline at the table. We want to show our greatness. But notice immediately in that same verse, what does Jesus say about himself? I didn't come here to recline. I came here to be the one who serves. And so then those verses that are above, they make more sense to us, right? If, if he is who the disciples believe him to be, the Son of God in the flesh then real honor, real uh, glory, what, what God values is not what the world values. It's not power as the world would have us to have it. But it is service. Service on behalf of others. It is service as Jesus has shown to them in Isaiah 53 that we saw a few weeks ago. It is service that Jesus has shown to them in John chapter 13 when he takes off his outer garment and wraps it around his waist and goes and washes their feet. The Lord of glory washing feet. 
It is service as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. And it is service that he will soon show at the cross and at the tomb. His is a heart that serves the Father. Serves even sinners. It's a servant's heart. Secondly, notice here the extent and the depth of his heart's love. And you see it in the Lord's Supper. And friends, there's way more to unpack here than we have time to do. And so maybe at some point we can come back to this because it is essential that we understand what we are doing when we have the Lord's Supper. But here, I would just simply just point you to three things quickly that, that make our point about his, the depths of His love. I'm just going to list them to you. First, notice the love that He has in the Supper itself. In verse 15, He says, I have longed to eat this with you. He deserve that. They didn't, he didn't have to eat supper with them. He didn't have to do any of this, but He longed to be with them. In John's account, in John chapter 17, remember the way He prayed for them. The way He prayed that the Father would glorify them as He Himself had been glorified in the Father. Consider the love of that heart. Secondly, you see it in what the supper represents. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilt on your behalf. He is pointing them ahead to what is to come. A love that this world has never seen. The Savior sacrificed for His people. And lastly, we see His love in what the supper brings. Supper brings then and now and in the future. Then and now, it's a means of grace. He still comes to us and He serves at the table. When we observe the Lord's Supper, Jesus is very much present with us as He was with them. But then in the future, it's a reminder of that marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, right? It's coming. Or we will eat with Him for all of eternity. What a, what a wonderful truth. And so we see the depths of His love. And then lastly and finally, and to bring us to a conclusion, we see His patience and His interceding heart. Uh, it's a heart that intercedes for His people. And you see it in His response to Peter. You know, if Peter had, had come to me and I knew what was going to happen, which Jesus did, and he was as arrogant or as confident as he seemed to be, and I knew it was all not going to be that way, I probably would have berated him. I would have said, hey, Peter, hush your mouth. I know, I know what's coming. I, you're not going to follow me. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I've prayed for you. I intercede for you even now that you will withstand this, that you will be strong, that you will grow in your love for me through it all. He is the great intercessor. He is the only mediator between God and man, and he appeals to his Father on behalf of us sinful people. Even now, he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. When you don't know what to pray, when your prayers don't feel like they're getting through the ceiling, he hears them, and he takes them, and he presents them to the Father. And they are worthy because He is worthy. Right? He prays on our behalf. So His is a heart that is a servant's heart. His is a heart that, that the depths of love we can't even begin to, to get to. And it is, His is an interceding heart. And that's just a glimpse of what all is there in the Savior's heart. Friends, 
even with what we've seen, it's clear that this is a heart that is fully committed to the will of His Father, and it is a heart that is fully committed to the salvation and the perseverance and the glorification of God's people. And as we make this final point of application, friends, what wonderful news that is for us today. Wherever you may be, whether you are part of that group that is the lost, or whether you are a part of that group that is saved but still sinful, your only hope, your only answer is Jesus. And again, as we have seen, the great news is is His heart is for you. He loves you far more than you can imagine. And He is with you far more than you can imagine. And He seeks out and He finds all who are His. He will lose none of those that the Father has given Him. So no matter how lost you may be, He can save. No matter how much you may feel like you are floundering in your Christian walk, He can get you to the end. You remember... Peter, when all of it, Jesus has died and he's out in the boat and he is fishing. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture. Jesus is on the beach. And how does Peter respond? He has longed for his Savior. All of our hearts now should long for that Savior. You remember how he responds? He, he everybody says, we're going back to the shore. And they start turning the boat. Peter's not waiting for the boat. He jumps in the water swims to the shore. He doesn't doesn't really know what he's going to get when he gets there. Jesus may say, hey, you're out. He knows he's got to get to Jesus. Friends, that's true for all of us. Whatever it takes, whether it's jumping off the boat and swimming, whether it's turning the other way, whatever it takes, we got to get to him. What a wonderful message for a new year. Follow him. May God give us the wisdom and the strength. May He make us dependent only on Him as we pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your heart towards us. We see the truth of our own hearts and we know the depths of sin that are there. And Lord, we confess that to You and we pray that You would forgive us for those sins. And we thank You that when we come to You in the name of Christ, You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But Lord, even now, as those who are redeemed as Your people... Uh, Sin is ever with us, and we need you to lead us and to guide us, to continue to, to show us how much we are dependent on you. And so, Lord, help us to always seek out our Savior. Help us always to run to him, uh, whatever it may take. Uh, help us to, to look for him in all that we do. And, Lord, we thank you that you love us uh, far more than we can imagine. You have done for us far more than we can grasp and imagine. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is hymn number 518, Christ of All My Hopes the Ground. Stand and we'll sing together.